Thank you, worship team, and for you guys singing out. If you have a Bible, open it to Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. While you're turning there, I want to ask a question that uh, we actually asked in our men's Bible study um, a couple of weeks ago, just in terms of who is it that you think of, that you look up to as a person that has poise, has composure. They don't seem to be easily rattled. They seem to uh, approach, whether it's... um, one of those things we, we put in the win column, they approach that with humility and gratitude, or one of those things that just, boy, the slats have been knocked out, and yet they seem to be um, not completely undone. They have a buoyancy uh, about them, or the pressures are pressing in, and we would be tempted to cave, but we look at them and we see, wow, they have, they have a stability. They have an unshakableness about them. And, and one simple way of saying it is, gosh, they seem to get it. They seem to get it. They seem to get what life is, what truly matters. They seem to not be scattered. They seem to not be easily collapsing. Just think about that person for a moment. What is it about them How did they go about getting it? And why is it that some people get it and some people don't? As believers, why are some of us able to connect Sunday to Monday? And some of us seem to go a completely different route. Some of us can connect Sunday to Monday, and yet some of us We can be in here and we can be a nodder and a note taker. All those are good things. And yet rarely see that affect our everyday. Why even this morning will there be different responses to God's word? Not to me, but to God's word. There's some of us that anytime spiritual things are brought up, we can even be like a place like this this morning. Some of us, anytime spiritual things or real things are brought up, we almost immediately change the subject. We glaze over and we don't respond. Why? Why do some of us respond eagerly at first? Kind of like when you're at camp. Have you been to camp? Right? You have the camp high. And it's always, you can time it. If it's a weekend, it happens on Saturday night at the campfire. If it's a week long, it happens on Friday night at the campfire because you leave Saturday. But we, we respond eagerly, some of us, and then we fade over time. We, at one point, we couldn't get enough of God's word and his people. We began studying it. We began getting involved in a church, maybe even a life group or a small group. But over time, you lost touch with that group. Attendance at church started to slide, and the next thing you know, you can't really remember the last time that you had a pulse for spiritual things. Why? And why of us, why are some of us, maybe even more than some of us, frustrated or bored with our spiritual lives? We know we're saved. We're in it for the long haul. We're not going to turn our back on God. We keep hoping that someday God will rescue us from our day-to-day malaise, that he'll transform our marriage. He'll transform 
our homes. We long for the day when we can respond with patience or like that person you're thinking of, composure, understanding, and wisdom instead of snapping, instead of folding. Why? Why do some get it and some don't? And then there are those, perhaps that person you've thought of. As a Christian, they really do flourish. That doesn't mean every day is blue skies. In fact, their flourishing often is beautified by the darkness of what they're going through, the season that they're in. But whatever's going on in their lives, they seem to have strength for it. There seems to be a continual joy and strength that buoys them. They seem to have something you and I don't. They seem to get it. Why? Why do some people get it spiritually and some people don't? Well, the answer to that question, if you're in Luke 8, if you're not, get there. Meet us there. The answer to that question comes up in a parable that Jesus told at a critical time in his life. We've been watching as we call this grassroots God. Jesus has been going around in basically his hometown region, and there have been um, more and more crowds, people astonished at his teaching. They are awed by the miracles that he's done when he has transformed people's lives in an instant. There are these crushing crowds, and yet there's also this contrary leadership that's begun to conspire, and they're bent on destroying Jesus. So with that as a backdrop, the crowds are growing and growing, but there's an undercurrent of, we got to get rid of this guy. Let's listen to Jesus' story. It's familiar, so don't glaze over. The parable of the sower, or you could call it the parable of the soils. In Luke 8, it'll be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 4, Connor. If you would stand in honor of God and his word, we're going to with our bodies, yeah, go two more slides, Connor. There we go. With our bodies and now our ears, hopefully through our ears with our hearts, be attentive to God's word. Pick up with me in verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, Jesus spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road. And it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, you need to know this, and, and, and you catch a little bit of glimpse here, but I give you the context that the crowds are growing. The opposition is stirring, but the crowds are growing. I, I say that, give you that context, because I think Jesus and his ministry strategy and his preaching would frustrate most of us. Yes, he has critics, the religious leaders conspiring to kill him, but the crowds have been growing. The popularity is off the charts. But take notice, not only here, but other times, whenever the crowds are coming and the popularity is rising, how does Jesus respond every time? Well, he exposes the posers. He calls out the resistors. He points out or holds up a mirror 
so that those who are superficial can see themselves. Basically, Jesus, when the crowds swell, Jesus actually looks to thin the ranks. They don't teach that class at my seminary. They didn't, um, last week at the Right Now Conference, which was phenomenal, um, they don't talk about, let's go thin the ranks. Why? Well, just because that's not what we're taught. But I want you to notice, when the crowds are swelling, Jesus isn't impressed with the crowds. He's not like, now we're getting somewhere. His disciples, um, if you think back earlier, Jesus went away and he often withdrew to pray by himself in a lonely place. And he'd been healing all day. And I think it was Capernaum at that time. And his disciples were like, where are you, man? I mean, it was a great day of ministry yesterday. We got more lining up at the door. And Jesus said, no, that's not why I've come. Let's go somewhere else. Jesus is not nearly as interested in the swelling of crowds, in the gathering of Christians in rows, or signing up for programs as we are. He's interested in, let's talk about where your heart really is, because what I'm after is those hearts who would be completely mine. And he looks to thin the ranks. That's not what we do. We think, get bigger, get better, ride this wave. Not only would his strategies frustrate us, but this right here is an example of his preaching. Those who came to hear him teach it would frustrate the tar out of us. Look at it. How does he end the sermon? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's it. He told a story about a farmer throwing some seed, and some of it grew up and some of it didn't. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Basically, these people had gathered. Uh, we know from other gospels this was likely at a, a beachside. Um, but he looks over and he sees a farmer who couldn't quite make it to teaching that day by the beachside. And Jesus says, hey, you, you see that farmer over there? Now he throws his seed and some of it falls on hard ground and some of it falls on ground and it looks to start to take root. But there's that level of rock just underneath that wasn't visible and boy, it quickly went out. He tells him a story, and he ends with, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's it. There's no final song. Um, we, didn't, we didn't turn all the lights off and have this, you know, uh, weeping session. Uh, those things aren't wrong, but, but notice, that's, Jesus just leaves it. There's no summary. He didn't give us a PowerPoint. He didn't give you a take-home guide, nothing. Jesus would frustrate you and me. We probably wouldn't want to go to his church. Well, you can't help but wonder what the crowd thought, right? He who has ears to hear. Well, it also baffled his disciples, which is why they say in verse 9, look there, and, and I, the, the, the slide I have here says, wait, what? Because that's how the disciples and you and I would hear his parable. Wait, what? Verse 9. His disciples began questioning Jesus as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He's saying, This is a picture of what also happened in Isaiah's day, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Jesus is saying, the secrets of the kingdom, 
I'm going to invest in you because he knows he's going away because you're going to be the ones through whom the message of the gospel gets out, that God's kingdom will get advanced through not just talked about but embodied truth. He says, therefore, I'm going to pour into you. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago when he healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath? I said, this is the pivot point in the gospels because it's at that point uh, in Mark and Luke particularly we see uh, Mark 3 and Luke 6, it says, And then they began to conspire or began to discuss how they might get rid of him, destroy him. Even uh, the Herodians and religious leaders got together, and they hated each other, but they were united by a common enemy. They were like, we can't take this guy anymore. And so what does he do? He goes off to a solitary place to pray. He prays all night in prayer, and he comes and chooses 12 that they might become not just disciples but apostles, which means sent one. He knows from this point on, I'm going to spend more time pouring into you and helping you understand because you're going to carry the torch. You're going to carry the message. And you got to know the, the bald truth. You got to know who I am, and I got to help you understand that you're going to, your category is going to be blown. I'm going to help to reassure you and reassure you. You're still going to have to grow in your faith. But I'm going to pour into you because it's ultimately through you that my light will shine. And so I'm, I'm telling you all this, reminding you of it, because he's now shifting to storytelling. He's now shifting to parables. Why, what are you, why are parables? I mean, you've been telling them the kingdom of God is near, and then you, you know, you'd, you'd uh, heal a person that was a demoniac, and then people would be like, oh, who is this? And he says, my attention is going to be more on you. But he tells it for two reasons. He, he, he tells us here that the reason why he goes the parable route is because it's going to be, they're going to become riddles to his resistors. And they're going to become helpful instruction and coaching to his hearers, to his followers, those who lean in to listen, those who don't have it all figured out, those who say, I, I don't have it all together in terms of who you are, but man, I, I, I want to hear more. I want to know more. And he says, so I speak in parables that way. He says, the mysteries of the kingdom are now being revealed and entrusted to you, not them. Hear this, a biblical mystery is not like when you were a kid and you watched Scooby-Doo. That's not what a biblical mystery is. A biblical mystery, um, it means something that's always been true, always been part of God's plan that may have been revealed in glimpses or bits and pieces in the old covenant and through the prophets, but now is fully revealed in the new covenant and particularly in the person of Jesus. That's what he means by the mysteries. Okay, these aren't things that are never to be known. Like my fraternity was so silly, initiation, like this should never go outside the walls of this and the secrets. Like, no, that's all bogus stuff. This is, this is truth that always has been, but maybe you haven't seen it in its full revelation. He goes, but I'm going to pour it more into you. I'm going to instruct you and help you. And soon my spirit will come and help you even more when you're still dense. Because you're the ones through whom God has always intended that this world would be reached with the gospel. So reason for parables is really to divide people into two groups, his followers and his resistors or rejectors. Now, when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, parables take effort. It's not that you can't understand them. He is saying hey, this is going to be to conceal to some or to reveal. It's, but it's not like it's completely 
out of the way, inaccessible. He's saying, I'm just going to say, you're going to have to work for it. And by that eagerness to work for it, you're showing a heart that's receptive. And if you don't have a heart that's receptive, then you're going to keep your ears stopped up, your hearts from receiving it. Let him ears, who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says that because a lot of the burden for you and for me falls on us as hearers when the teacher uses parables. Uh, they're meant to, parables are meant to agitate the mind and the heart so that the point lingers. I'm going to give you a couple that you wouldn't think of as parables. Um, Dr. Hannah at Dallas Seminary had a lot of these one-liners that he would say, um, you know, you don't see an oak tree grow, but it does. And we're like, and a really, really fun thing, a friend of mine never had, this is such an encouragement um, because, you know, often you can wonder like, man, am I making a difference in anybody's life? Uh, one time a roommate of mine uh, at Auburn, years later, um, we kept in touch or whatever, but one day in the mail I received a picture and an acorn. And then a little small, like, three-line note, just thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for caring because of you. Acorn, full oak tree. That's a parable. What is a parable? It's a picture, right? It, it's, um, it's a picture that becomes a mirror where we begin to see ourselves in it. And then it actually, if we're willing to lean in to listen more and to take it in, it then becomes a window through which we can see the life that he calls us into. I won't give you any more of those one-liners. Um, <clears throat> but much like a joke, I've had to explain this to our son Noah, who loves to entertain. Um, it's only comedy if they get it and you don't have to explain it. Um, but that's the way parables are. Because in parables, it's not the point of reference that really matters. It's the intended response. That's what Jesus is after. Um, they are told these parables, we are told them, where the hearers become caught in the story. And we must decide how we will respond to what we hear. Um, I am here today in front of you, at least in part, because I got caught in a parable from a man who invested in me as a mentor and cared enough about me. I was, I don't know, third year of seminary. I was also working like 15 hours a week paid, but I was working like 40 plus hours at the church, loving it, loving ministry. And I had a kind of my, you know, late 60s moment, like I don't need a piece of paper to define me. I can just do ministry. This guy is a very well, um, a uh, very reputable uh, attorney, downtown Dallas, giant clients or whatever, but he's got, a, he's got a very incisive way of, let me let me tell you a little story. And he told me a parable. And his parable was, well, buddy, let's just imagine that there was this second-year lawyer, uh, law student at SMU, and he was even, wow, like other law profs would come and sit in their, you know, their case, their, their mock trials, and this guy would just wow with his presence in the, the courtroom or whatever. And they're like, man, this guy, he's five-star. He's six-star. Um, he said, but then that guy said, you know, I think I don't even need that piece of paper, man. I'm so good at this lawyering. I'll just step into it. He goes, do you think I would hire that man? 
And he said, I know it's just a piece of paper, buddy. In one sense, you don't need it to validate you, Dallas Seminary diploma or whatever. He says, but that piece of paper lets me know that you're able to start something you finish. I was caught in the story. Now, he didn't even have to finish with that. He just was kind enough to go, let me give you a little further nudge, you know, mister, I don't need a piece of paper. Well, when Jesus tells parables, he's wanting you and me to be caught in the story. He's wanting you and me to have ears that are willing to hear because parables are like hidden landmines. When all of a sudden it's too late and you realize I'm standing on explosives, there is no way out now. And so let's listen as Jesus now explains it in verse 11. He's going to give a backstage pass to his disciples and to you and to me to hear and understand this parable. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance or with patience. Now, anytime we um, go through a parable, we need to understand how the original hearers heard it. Most of us, maybe there's one or two gentlemen or gentlewoman farmers in here, but I don't know that there are. But for the most part, we don't know. They also didn't farm like we, they didn't have industrial um, size, you know, John Deere's or what, like none of that. And so a first century sower, when it came time to sow, there'd been some growth since the harvest. There'd been some growth on the land and they didn't really know the condition of the soil that they were sowing the seed on. This is how it would go. The, The farmer would clear his field of brush, just kind of the top stuff, but don't think plowing. And then he would take the bag of seed from his hip, and you've seen the painting of the the sower, you know, from the hip, and just broadcast it liberally, generously, just trying to get some seed somewhere, just all over the land. To him, pretty much all the soil looked pretty much the same. After the seed was sown, then the farmer would plow, kind of dig up so that that seed could get now under that soil and begin to do what a seed is meant to do. And so some of the seed would get trampled by people walking by on the the fringes of the the property or eaten by birds who were hungry and like, oh, look, buffet. And they go down and get it. Um, But that would happen once he plowed, whatever was left is what he would have. Other than that, he would not know the condition of the soil in each area of the field, whether there were thorns or rock or good soil. Uh, Miles Fidel, who um, is a pastor at Auburn Community Church, I told you I went there two weeks ago um, uh, with my son, and we went there, and he, uh, I listened to him on this passage this past week. He says, um, he calls this Jesus giving his disciples and us our backstage pass. That there, there's this thing going on, that everyone there in the crowd is hearing, you know, this, this, this parable, 
But then the disciples get to go backstage and say, no, no, I didn't want to ask this in front of everybody else, but what in the world? You know, sower and seed and rock and thorns. He gives us a backstage pass. What he wants us to know is that fruitfulness, fruitfulness is what the sower wants and expects. The farmer's not going, you know, I just love throwing seed. Now, like a good athlete, you begin to love practice because it's the process that gets to the outcome that you'd like to see, but you have no control over. Same in farming. At some point, a farmer actually loves the process. As much as they hate that we got rid of daylight savings time, all that stuff, right? They, but they get out and they do the process because they love seeing what happens. And they know it won't happen if they don't sow the seed. But the farmer wants and expects fruit. Notice Jesus' point is that fruitfulness does not depend on the sower um, in terms of his skill or you know, certain methods he uses, but it depends on the receptivity and the growth-sustaining ability of the soil. Jesus teaches that these soils represent human hearts. Jesus is describing every heart in here this morning. One of these four soils is you. It's easy to quick read and go, yeah, the first three, they're not good. The fourth one's the good one. But here's what I would say. There, there is that level of, um, of which, in terms of just receiving the truth of the gospel and believing it, we cannot even make our soil good there, right? But um, perhaps most of us in here are believers, and in that instance, we were, he caused us to be receptive to the truth of the gospel, but I would say beyond that, it depends on right now. Some of us may be along the road, hardened, unresponsive, glazed over, numb, been there, done that. Some of us are that because we're, we're filled with, with shame and hardness or disappointment has just soured us and we're like, I don't want to hear another word. I'm here. I should get some points with God. But that's where, that's where we are. Some of us are like, that's right. I, I needed this word. And we get fired up, and then it goes away pretty quickly because the rock underneath, not enough moisture could get there. Most of us in this room very often are the third one where there's growth, but alongside that growth are thorns that will grow with whatever God is germinating in us and will choke out, will compete for the same ground, the same nourishment, and will choke out our lives. It's why most of us are exhausted. Most of us are disappointed. Most of us are tired, bored. You name it. It's because we are living lives that we're allowing to be choked by the things of this world, the worries, the riches, and the pleasures. And so realize we are one of these four soils. Um, again, what's being addressed in here is the condition of the soil and how it responds to the seed. The real question is your, your um, receptivity. How receptive are you to God's word to you this morning? How, how receptive are you to having even your hearing checked? And in having your hearing checked, 
how courageous are you to stay and allow him to say, here's where you really are. And know that he is doing so with care, with compassion, with an ache for you to no longer keep running and running and running or keep allowing yourself to be choking and choking and choking and choking out that which is truly life. So he's looking at, he's picturing the receptivity of my heart as I hear God's word this morning. He's picturing, he wants you to be caught in this parable to say, how is my receptivity? And he's saying, he who has ears to hear, she who has ears to hear, let her hear. Here's the principle of this, this passage. The principle is receptivity determines productivity. Whatever the condition of your receptivity, your heart, how receptive you are, will determine the direction you take, will determine fruitfulness, because that is what he's looking for in your life. He's not looking for comfort. He's not looking to give you just a ticket to heaven, but really you live a double life. He's looking for fruitfulness. He expects it. And that not only is profitable for the farmer, it's nourishing for you, for the eater of the food, for that which is produced is a flourishing life. So a hearer's heart determines how receptive we are to God's word and the fruitfulness of our life. If that's so, let's look again briefly at the third soil because I would say this is where many of us are. And I would call this one the preoccupied heart. Preoccupied heart. We've heard the word, but the verse says that that there's some faith chokers that choke out and suffocate. They move in alongside and they suffocate and choke out the seed so that it doesn't bear fruit. The seed which fell among the thorns, verse 14, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Don't look at your life today because it takes time and patience. He says, by endurance, the fruit will come. But look at your life down the road, five years, a decade, more. Will fruit that's tasty and delicious and beautiful and profitable, will flourishing be what marks your life based on how receptive you are today? If not, then see to it how you hear. Be careful how you hear. He says the preoccupied heart, we get preoccupied with, with I'm going to put them in two camps, the false premise of worry, anxiety, worries of this world, literally the cares of this age. And worry comes from a word that has the idea of drawing in two directions to distract. Hence, it causes anxiety. When I'm trying to live for the Lord, but I'm also trying to get this thing handled on my own terms and in the way I want it, because dadgummit, you're, you're taking too long. Dadgummit's okay in church, right? 
what is that? I'm pulled in two directions. That's why I've said over and over again, we said at the beginning of the year, we did a short series on God invites us to wholeheartedness. The, the, the um, antidote to your exhaustion, what is just wearying you, is not bootstrapping it and getting a plan together. It's wholeheartedness. Some of us say we're overcommitted. No, we're not. We're undercommitted and we're overscattered in terms of what gets our attention. And it's choking you and you know it. And if you're choked, then hear his invitation and his rescue out of it right now. It's not, well, it is what it is. Those who know me know I despise that phrase. Because it is what it is means we're going to be double-minded Christians. We're being choked out because of the worries of the world or the other, not just the false premise of worry, because the false premise of worry is if I worry about it, I'll get control of it, and then it'll be handled. It never works. Your worry is impotent. The second thing that can choke us is the false promises of riches and pleasure. There's the deceitfulness of wealth. I believe Matthew calls it that. It gives us this false impression either by appearance, statement, or influence. And we can be sucked in by that false, false promise that, gosh, if I just get my life to this point, if I just get this in this area handled, now I'll have peace and serenity and security. And it's choking out where that really comes from. What do these two do? Like thorns to grain, they choke the life out of you and me. The word choke means to choke together by crowding. It's used and Mark's uh, version of the gospel, uh, Mark's gospel where uh, the, the demons are put into the pigs and they rush down the hill and they're drowning. It's drowning. If drowning is a good word or choking is a good word for how you feel like you're already sweating about stepping into the week tomorrow, then be careful how you hear. Take inventory, allow God to do a hearing check. Because he's saying, he's saying your receptivity you must be giving your receptivity to something else. Turn your ears to me and your ear, direct your attention through your ears because it's through your ears that your heart can receive. And our heart's receptivity will determine productivity. What's the result if we just keep this way of living choked, the preoccupied heart, our lives end up scattered, overstuffed, and empty? And there is no rest for the distracted. Choked receptivity for the preoccupied causes us to be unfruitful. Well, Jesus isn't finished. He told this parable, but look at verse 16. He just changes metaphors, but he's still in the same, this is the same session right here. He says, now no one lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed. He puts it up on a lampstand. Why? So that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he, shall, uh, he has, shall be taken away from him. Verse 19. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. It was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. I'm going to make two observations there. 
Um, first of all, I want you to look through the passage that we've gone through, all the segments, and what you're going to see is the same threaded theme throughout it. He who has ears to hear, uh, let him hear. And then you, you see that uh, in the, the good heart, hears the word, and um, holds it fast and bears fruit. And then in verse 18, so take care or be careful, or literally it is, see how you hear. The word in there is, it's a seeing word. What he's saying is take stock how you hear, believer. Take stock. See how you are hearing. Because how you are hearing will determine if you get it in this week, in this stretch, in this season, and whether or not his word will take root and germinate and then cause you to flourish in all the ways that is life and life to the full that he intends for you. And then the last verse there, my family, he says, this is thicker than bloodlines. It's those who hear God's word and do it. Those who hear and put it into practice. As Jacob preached a few months ago from James, let's not be merely hearers of it because everybody heard some quickly bounced off, got snatched up. Some, it, you know, had promise and disappeared. Some got choked out. They all heard, but it's be not just merely hearers, but also doers of the word. And my doing does it's not quite as big as we put it. We think, oh, just these grand schemes of doing God's word. No, that means Ephesians four thirty two, be kind hearted. Be kind and tenderhearted toward one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. If I have a receptive heart, the next time somebody offends me, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven me. It's, you don't even have to do it perfectly. Just say, Lord, give me the strength to try to walk in that direction so I don't hold a grudge, so I don't gossip. That is hearing with receptivity and practicing it. Those who get it are not those who take great notes, not those who've read every commentary. Believe me, I've had my fill of being at seminary, having many seminarians when I was a young adults pastor in Dallas who were part of our ministry and thought I should instantly give them teaching platforms and this and that. I was like, let me see if you'll come early and set up chairs and pray and get to know some folks. Listen, in a Bible church, it's a false premise, not just worry and the riches and pleasure of this world, you can also be choked out by the religious way of going, by the way of going, you know what? I've heard this. I got this. Are you practicing it? Because if not, then you, you ain't got this. It's about, are you receptive to my word? And are you putting it into practice? He, he's basically saying, use it or lose it here. Practicers, Hearers and practicers get it and flourish. Uh, Van Cliburn, the famous pianist, he dropped out of playing the piano. Then years later, he seriously began thinking about coming back on the concert stage, and he told an interviewer if he was going to make a comeback, it would require him to devote eight to ten hours a, a day, six days a week for two years. Otherwise, he would not be concert ready. Use it or lose it. When Van Cliburn quit playing, he didn't say the same. Some of you know me. And this probably irritates you about me, but 
I know just enough of several languages to try to practice them with people. I know a little French. I know a little Spanish. I know a little Romanian. I know a little Mandarin. But that also can get me in trouble because if you don't use it, you lose it. And one time in particular, I thought I was asking a woman who had just come to live. Her husband came earlier to set up their household. She moved from China, and I went to meet her, and instead of saying, Ni hao ma, which means how are you, I said, Wa ai ni. Do you know what this means? I love you. I told this man's wife, I love you. Okay, Use it or lose it, and I almost lost my life because the husband really glared at me that day. Okay, But what he's saying is, don't sit here and go, man, that was awesome. What a great message. Man, God really hit me. Some of the people I most admire in my life are those who come each Sunday, and they're not impressed with me. They know the underbelly of Buddy. They know the, you know, can you just get to the point and land the plane, Buddy? All that. You know what they come, though? They come with a receptivity, and they'll go, I should put this into practice this week. You start doing that, you start stacking the practice of very plain scripture, your life will be a flourish. And it will, as he says here, that's why he says it. I didn't come actually to conceal it and hide it away like it's this own, no, I'm keeping you from it. He's still inviting everyone to hear and, and receive the truth. But he's saying, instead of them being impressed by my preaching, my parables, I'm actually going to send you out. I'm going to invest in you, followers, so you'll hear and understand, so that you will go out, so that the message will go out through my followers, as we say around here, my ambassadors who will represent me with how they live and how they share the message and how they embody that message so that the gospel would be on display. The parable of the lamp is another way of saying Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before others that they see your good work. Not your notes, not stuff you know, but they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. He says, I'm not here to, to keep people from the kingdom, but they're resisting me, so I'm going to say, you got to work for this. you got to show that you have a heart, because what he's looking for are eager listeners and ready doers. Last thing I'll say, and then I'll have the worship team come up. Because most of us can be in that. We don't even realize it. We think we're the good soil, but we haven't had a receptive heart in years because we've already got that all figured out and all stored away. But my friend Cole, um, I've shared this before with you, but he says, if you want to know a mark of maturity, it especially comes with how you and I hear God's word. And he shared a story from his life where Billy Graham actually asked for the tapes, this is back in the day, the tapes of a poor single guy. He's not poor financially, but he was going to be preaching at like this famous church in England, and Billy Graham was going over. And Billy Graham knows I could cause a stir. I don't want to. I want to slip in the back, but I want you to know I'm coming. And all the people on staff there were very mean to this guy. They knew it was the, the single, like, associate, associate, intern guy. It was his turn in the pulpit and Billy Graham was going to be in the audience. But Billy Graham, weeks later, sent back and said, I was so encouraged by that young man's message. Could I receive a tape from it? Now, Billy Graham, like you and me, could have said, ah, that's not really, I mean, I kind of need, you know, 
I need a porterhouse level. I can't do this cheap sirloin. What was he exhibiting? Receptivity to the word of God. It didn't matter who was speaking. It didn't matter what the passage was. And my friend Cole, here's the statement he says. I want you to hear this. If we want to be good soil, which means we're maturing, and maturity is shown by the flourishing of fruit, the maturing are easily edified. The maturing are easily edified. Are you easily edified? Are you eager to hear in your small group? Are you eager to hear maybe somebody sharing and you're like, oh, that maybe God might be trying to pass on some truth to you in that moment? Is it only a certain grade level of person that you would hear from? The maturing are easily edified. The non-receptive are arrogant and don't know it. And they're unfruitful. And the farmer's looking for fruit. The farmer's looking actually not just for fruit like a demand, but so that flourishing happens, which is what he intends for you and for me. And then he says, yeah, but then, then you'll start getting it. You'll get in on the life that I came to give you, the life that's abundant, life that's full. Will the worship team come up because really that's what it gets down to. When we're those who really are allowing the pleasures, the riches, the whispers of this world to choke us out, what we're really saying is, I don't know, Jesus, if you've given me enough. I don't know if what you're offering, what, what do you offer me, Jesus? Because over here, I'm being offered satisfaction, significance. Well, that's a false promise. It's gonna choke out the life that is life indeed. And we're going to sing a song. We're singing enough, right? Okay. <laughs> we're singing a song to that very thing. And I want you to think about, ask the Lord right now, would you stand? Ask him, Lord, where is my heart? Is my heart receptive to you? If not, ask him to do a work right now to make you receptive. And then let's confess. We don't want to go after the counterfeits of this world that choke us. But we want to listen and hear from him so that we might live lives that are what he's looking for, flourishing and fruitful.